The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Tonight, we move to the, let's see, it's not quite the normal. It's not quite the abnormal. It's definitely not the paranormal, but it's disturbing nonetheless. Although the message tonight will be a little more hopeful, and I'm, I'm going to warn you right now, uh, there are very few shows where uh, I run the risk of geeking out, but this is going to be one of them. Tonight we're going to be talking to Beetle expert Kenneth Womack, Dr. Kenneth Womack. In, in fact, he's got a new book out. It's called John Lennon 1980, The Last Days in a Life. And he talks about, in this book, the things John Lennon was doing prior to him being murdered in front of his home on December 8th, 1980. We're almost 40 years from that assassination. In fact, we will be this December. And... Um, John Lennon, of course, one of the Beatles. I don't think I have to tell too many people that. A, a major uh, force in pop music history, rock and roll history, and pop culture history. Not to mention political activism and other things. But this is going to be a very fascinating conversation. And because of the topic, because we'll be talking about the Beatles, because we'll be talking about John Lennon, I am warning you now, I may get a little geeked out. But there we go. So um, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time in this opening segment because I want to get Dr. Kenneth Womack on the program so we can be begin the conversation. Uh, I will remind you to subscribe in all the great places, uh, YouTube, Twitch, and, of course, on Facebook. And we'll take a break right now. We'll get uh, Dr. Kenneth Womack on with us. We'll begin the conversation so that I can, in fact, geek out. It's Beyond Reality, and tonight it's all about John Lennon. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to Beyond Reality Paranormal. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. I'm going to ask that you support this program. The easiest way to do that, by the way, is if you're listening as a podcast, you just open up the description of the episode and you scroll down to the bottom. And at the bottom, there is a link that says support this podcast. If you click on that, you'll be taken to a page that gives you a couple of options for supporting the show. We greatly appreciate it. It helps us bring great programs to you every week, and we look forward to continuing to do that. And if you're enjoying the program on YouTube, there's another way you can support the show. Just go to the description. You'll see a link to a Patreon page. It's Joha, J-O-H-A-W. And if you go to the Patreon page, you'll be able to pledge an amount to help support the show as well. Once again, thanks for your support. Thank you for listening. Please share it with your friends. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, there are points in history that burn themselves into the memories of those who've lived through them. There are wars, there are disasters, and of course there are pandemics. But we seem to, despite their seriousness, heal from those and move on. Tragic though they are. But one type of tragedy that seems to leave its mark like no other is when we lose someone in a violent or unexpected way, especially in an untimely manner on a national or international stage. I wasn't alive when JFK was assassinated, but clearly that's one of those times. I was alive when it was announced that Elvis Presley had died. 
at the age of 42. And even as a kid, I was affected and still am by that day. And then three short years later, a moment of similar consequence interrupted the amusement of a Monday night football game when Howard Cosell announced that John Lennon, former Beatle, had been shot and killed in front of his home in New York City. There have been many days where, as the phrase goes, the music has died. But this may have been the most devastating to the greatest number of people. On December 8th, 1980, the serious Beatle, the political activist Beatle, the husband to Yoko Ono, the father of Julian and then later Sean, the writing partner of Paul McCartney, who together penned and performed more hits than anyone before or since. The Beatle, the artist who changed the course of popular music almost single-handedly, of rock and roll almost single-handedly, of pop culture, of politics, and arguably even the human existence, was dead at the hands of an assassin. And what makes this tragedy even more tragic is that it came at a time when John Lennon was on the precipice of being the best he had ever been. And given that he was already a music legend, that says a lot. And tonight we're going to be talking with someone who's not only an expert on the Beatles, but has written a book called John Lennon, 1980, The Last Days in a Life. Dr. Kenneth Womack. Ken, welcome to Beyond Reality. I have to tell you, I might geek out a little bit because I'm such a huge Beatles fan. And just looking through your list of credits and the books you've written, we have a lot to talk about tonight. Well, I'm really glad to be here with you tonight, J.D. Thanks for having me. So there are so many things that we can talk about, um, but let's, I'd like to get a little bit more about your background. Obviously, you too are a huge Beatles fan. You've written a tremendous amount about them, uh, not just about John Lennon, but about the Beatles as a group. Where did you and what do you remember of your uh, initial interest in the Beatles that became that led you to become a fan uh, very similar to, to uh, the way I am, it seems? Well, it was uh, in 1977. I'm like you. I'm not a first-generation fan, and I um, discovered them when uh, their cartoons preempted my favorite morning show, which was called <laughs> uh, The New Zoo Review. I was 11 years old, and it was something that uh, I would watch with my much younger brother, you know, over Cheerios. And <laughs> it was gone. <laughs> One day, The New Zoo Review was gone, and it, I think it had just um, been canceled, and in its place were, were those old Beatles cartoons from the mid 1960s. And uh, I wasn't impressed with with the cartoons. As right. stories went, they were you know terrible. But right. um, but it was the music that captured me, and I think that's important because um, uh, you know that is the the one facet of their achievement that will live, and that is those recordings. And John Lennon himself said. Uh, you know, why do you want reunions or, or anything else? The, the only thing that matters is the music. You will always have this music. And uh, I think he was very prescient in understanding how important that would become. Obviously, this book, this new book, John Lennon, 1980, The Last Days in a Life, uh, focuses on John Lennon specifically. Uh, did you have an affinity toward John Lennon as your favorite Beatle, if you will, as opposed to any of the others? No, I didn't. I've never really had a favorite Beatle. I suppose if I if I started off with maybe a nod in any direction, it was because Paul McCartney was so massive, uh, you know, during the period when I discovered the band. So it was easy to hear him on the radio uh, during that, that period. Um, 
But uh, I certainly was, uh, you know, since I started uh, really becoming interested in them in 1977, by the time 1980 rolls around, you know, I was just giddy with excitement about this new album. And I was, uh, by this point, you know, very cognizant of the fact that he hadn't done anything, as it were, in a long time. And so it was a big deal. Let's talk a little bit about uh, John Lennon from basically 1969, 1970, when the Beatles came apart, broke up. Uh, And he made a little bit of music early after that, uh, but then seemed to withdraw from public attention, public life. Walk us through the end of the Beatles uh, through those middle years in the 1970s. Well, he certainly had, um, I think, probably in his own mind, something to prove, and he does that right out of the gate with the 1970 release of uh, the Plastic Ono Band album, which, of course, turns 50 uh, this fall, and uh, for many, is his crowning achievement. Um, Certainly his most, I guess, confessional sort of work, Um, very sparse, uh, you know, with that kind of Phil Spector sheen to it. Mm -hmm. Um, He would come out with Imagine, which is certainly a more commercial record, um, and, uh, you know, I think is uh, has a special place in the hearts of a lot of John Lennon and Beatles fans. And then, of course, um, you have some ups and downs. You've got... uh, (laughs) The Sometime in New York City album, which has a big heart about activism Mm -hmm. uh, and certainly sees John and Yoko attempting to uh, to capture the zeitgeist, uh, the quality to my mind. And I think a lot of folks uh, falls uh, slightly uh, behind those first two albums uh, that he christened his post Beatles life with. Um, But then you have Mind Games, which has a number of very fine cuts. Walls and Bridges uh, is uh, magnificent in many ways. And then his throwback effort with rock and roll. Uh, But it was a kind of natural time for him to pull back. He'd had that long experience attempting just to stay in the United States, right? Yeah. Um, With with that long immigration fight, um, getting his green card, uh, the Apple, uh, you know, their, their commitment to EMI uh, and their Apple label ended uh, in 1976. And so John, after the Shave Fish compilation, was without, as it were, a contract. Not that he couldn't have had a new one. In fact, uh, <laughs> um, there was a fellow uh, with EMI who, every time he was in New York, would attempt to get John to sign with <laughs> EMI. <laughs> Um, and his name was Bob, and John called him Bob Have Mercy, you know, because he just wouldn't let up. Um, and uh, because, rightly so, he, he figured John would come out with new music again someday. And, uh, you know, his interest was keeping keeping John with the home label. But I I think when we look at, look back on that period retrospectively, it's pretty clear that he needed a break of some kind. I mean, First of all, they were running around the world and just putting all of their energy into the Beatles. But unlike the others, he then has this protracted immigration fight, which just dominates so much of his energy and attention. It had to be draining. Yeah, yeah, he wanted to make New York his home. And uh, I don't know the entire uh, background of this fight, but I do know that Richard Nixon didn't necessarily want him here. And uh, I think even Elvis Presley got involved in that a little bit in some fashion. Lisa gave his opinion on it. Yeah, and it, it, it wasn't probably too helpful. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, John was on the enemies list, uh, by contrast, um, which was a badge of honor for a lot of folks during that period. Uh, but, but, you know, Elvis had gone in and, uh, and met with the president at one point. Um, uh, so it was very different kind of, uh, experience they were having in the 1970s in more ways than one. Um, but yeah, it really sucked a lot of the life out of him just having to engage in this fight, not being able to travel to go back to his, you know, his homeland. Uh, it just wasn't simply wasn't possible because of course, if he left the country, um, getting back in was going to be nigh on impossible. Um, and all of it started, you know, um, pretty strangely when he was kind of manipulated by other activists into participating in an anti-Nixon rally that he never attended, you know, so, (laughs) but he got slapped at that moment. He got slapped with this kind of counterculture connection and the Nixon administration just wouldn't let it go. John was known for his political activism. Um, You know, he wrote songs about his uh, political beliefs, things like, I mean, even give peace a chance is pretty clear. The message is straightforward. Uh, he did, he had the, the bed in with uh, Yoko in Amsterdam. And, uh, he was, he was obviously someone who cared about politics or at least peace. Uh, how much did that distract him? Do you think from making music? Did, did that become more of a focus for him in those early seventies years? I don't know that it distracted him at all, really. I mean, he was his output was very steady, just like it had been in the Beatles years. I mean, one thing that, and you can see this various, especially during those first few years after their disbandment, they are continuing to be almost the same level of workaholics they were inside the band. I mean, these guys just didn't know how to do anything but work. Um, and I think... <laughs> Most Americans can understand that, right? This kind of, uh, you know, work first uh, and then taking time off later, even though John Lennon would, you know, talk about the deep need to hang out and have uh, time when you could meditate um, or settle in with, with a good book or what have you. These guys really worked a lot and would have very continuous levels of product coming out. Um, so I don't know that it distracted um, it certainly was something he believed very strongly, and he was very strongly anti-war, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, he burnished those credentials with, uh, I don't want to be a soldier on the Imagine album, um, and just a number of other songs where, you know, his pacifism was on full display. He wasn't, uh, you know, a violent radical by any stretch, uh, in spite of kind of the thunderous sound of revolution. That just really wasn't his bag. He was for out and out peace and human rights, you know. Um, so he takes a lot of time off in the late seventies from everything. But as soon as they get back in the public eye, you know, they're contributing to causes again. And even, um, uh, the week of his murder, he was scheduled to fly out to California to participate in support of uh, a striking union. The uh, you mentioned it in one of the answers to the earlier questions when you talked about the rivalry uh, that probably had a lot to do with the output as well. When the Beatles broke up, you had John and Paul kind of butting heads and both of them wanted to prove to the other what they could do on their own. I would imagine anyway, right? Sure. I mean, there was a, I think it was mostly healthy. You know, a lot is made of uh, John's song, How Do You Sleep, on the Imagine album. Right. But he very quickly pointed out, 
um, that that really was him looking inward. In fact, a lot of his songs where he would attack people like Dylan or McCartney were really him um, using straw men uh, to attack himself for what he saw as his own failings, um, you know, his own inability to to rise to the occasion um, or, ma- or, or make great music. You know, he often second-guessed not just his voice and the quality of his yeah, voice, yeah. Um, but he would also second-guess the recordings um, and uh, didn't enjoy hearing them. In fact, um, when they would come on the radio, when he would drive around with his assistant Fred, uh, in the very late 1970s and in 1980, he would turn them off because all he could do is think about how they needed to be remade. Yeah, one of the things he did in the studio quite often was um, he, he would uh, double his voice because he felt it was weak. He didn't think he had a great voice. And uh, he, so he would sing over himself, you know, and that's just a recording technique to kind of fatten the sound of a voice and maybe even hide some sins uh, in the recording process. But he, he certainly had an amazing voice and one of the most recognizable voices of pop music of all time. Absolutely. And, um, you know, he learned very early on from George Martin that he could double track his voice and give it more firmness and power. And of course, as soon as they were able to develop various kinds of trickery in the studio, courtesy of Jeff Emmerich or Ken Townsend, he was all over it because he wanted to alter the sound of his voice. Even Jack Douglas on the last, uh, the last record would put a little bit of slap echo. So John would sort of lay off the attacks on his own voice. But when you, you know, you know, I'm sure the Let It Be Naked project from 2003, there's that amazing version of Across the Universe where his voice has no treatment whatsoever. And it's just staggeringly beautiful. He, he, his voice was not only beautiful, but it was haunting in a lot of ways. And the thing that always impressed me about John Lennon and I think a lot of people go through a Beatles evolution where when you're first introduced, you may be mesmerized by Paul and his melodies and his, you know, his his abilities on the guitar. And then as things get a little more serious, you start to respect what John Lennon was contributing in many ways. And John Lennon had a way to take very simple messages and put them into song lyrics in a very creative way. Uh, and make them so much more powerful than, you know, the the, uh, the the sum of the parts. The whole was so much more powerful. Well, that's just true of the Beatles anyway. I mean, you know, they, they truly are. And that's why, going back to your earlier question, I don't have a favorite Beatle. You really need them all. Yeah. And you needed George Martin in that room, too. You needed – it was just an amazing collection of people at the very right time, uh, at, at the very right moment in time, doing something really extraordinary. They are the sum of their parts, all of their parts. Um, you know, when you, when you talk about his voice or Paul's melodies, one of the things that makes them so special is the fact that they really knew how to sing. Yeah. And Lennon and McCartney in particular learned back in those poorly – uh, poorly PA amped clubs in Hamburg, they learned how to belt out a tune. And so both of them had lots of amazing voice control. They had vocal control. They knew how to control their voices at different uh, levels of power to sing from the diaphragm. And uh, it makes a lot of the difference in those recordings. Well, you hear, you hear uh, McCartney in songs like I'm Down or even in Hey Jude and how, how they just belt it out and you know you don't try this at home folks you're going to blow a vocal cord here (laughs) sure or um, a song that i think people have only just begun to love 
in a, in a larger sense over the last 20 years or so. Hey, Bulldog, when John screams out, you know, if you're lonely, you can talk oh, to me. God. He does that with just extraordinary vocal power. And uh, that that makes the song worth it just to hear him sing that line is uh, it'll it gets the hairs up on the back of your neck. You just gave me chills by mentioning the title because that is has been since my introduction to the Beatles one of my favorite Beatle tracks. It's an amazingly powerful song. Love that song. Um John uh had had met Yoko Ono in the late 60s and it it changed a lot. And I'd like to get maybe kind of clear the air a little bit. What are your thoughts on Yoko Ono's influence on the end of the Beatles or the Beatles, uh, her influence on them at all? I don't know that she has uh, an influence on the end of the band um, so much. And and actually uh, uh, a Beatles writer, um, I know it wasn't a Beatles writer at all. I was talking to Michael DeBar, uh, you know, the fellow who was in the power station for a mm-hmm. while and had written that great 1980s hit, Obsession. Um, and we were talking about that, and he, and he made a great point about her that I just can't get out of my head. And it is that Yoko, as an artist, brought attention to the band that helped shape those last few albums. And I think that's true. I think that's a great way to think about her. She certainly didn't break them up. I I find that to be um, silly. They denied it. She denied it. Um, It was different that she wanted to be with, you know, her boyfriend and husband in the studio. And and that kind of, I guess, weirded them out by most accounts, particularly George Harrison, um, who had been, you know, grown up in a very traditional kind of, you know, with gender boundaries in the home, uh, has had a lot of Liverpudlians and a lot of people around the world, right, from the 40s and the 50s. Um, But beyond that, uh, you know, they broke up because the politics were so thick in that band. You know, they they harnessed their ambition in ways that very young people often don't, right, where they recognized – late in 1963 and certainly in 64 when there were no fewer than three different television specials devoted to the genius of Lennon and McCartney. And yet they hadn't really done anything yet in terms of the great majesty of their music. So very early on the stakes of authorship, as I like to describe it, get really high because they realize something. They are doing something that will probably eclipse history and that's a lot of heavy weight when you're 21, 22, 23 to think about. And because of that, this kind of one-upsmanship uh, begins to take place, certainly between Lennon and McCartney when they're no longer writing together, but they're showing up with songs and trying to get the next single or you know break the next record or whatever you know it is. Uh, and then, of course, here comes George Harrison yeah. uh, taking up the rear. Um, and for a while, they can ignore him. But after a while, nobody can in the studio because he's just rolling out one gem after another. So the stakes are pretty high inside that band. And then you have the simple fact that you're growing up and you're growing older. And nobody thought rock bands would be something you do when you're 40. Right? Right. And then secondly, um, you know, you I don't know anybody who really wants to hang out with the guys you knew when you were 16. Right. You just don't. You don't. You don't. Yeah. 
Um, and they certainly didn't want to. You mentioned George Martin, and again, this is a bit of an aside, but I, you know, I've got you here. I've got to ask you these questions. You've written a lot about George Martin's influence in the studio, and for folks that don't know who George Martin was, is tell uh, tell them who he is and how important he was to the Beatles. But George Martin was a fellow they had to win over. Um, he was, uh, you know, the, the first producer. He was the A and R head at. Parlophone, who signed them and uh, ultimately supervised their first session on June 6, 1962. Um, he was not bowled over by them at all. They had a penny per record contract. Uh, what they didn't know about this man with this beautiful cut glass, uh, what sounded like an upper class voice, was that he was actually more impoverished than any of them had been. He was from the wrong side of the tracks. Um, and he was making and remaking himself in London and had been for more than a decade at this point. And he wanted a rock band. He didn't think they were it at first. So they had to win him over. And it was John Lennon who does that in September 1962 when they come back to work on other tracks with him. They've already recorded Love Me Do. Um, and he's consigned to the fact that that's going to be their first single. He's not fond of it other than he likes the harmonica. But what happens is John stands up to him uh, and says, you know, we want to do our own material, and here's this song, Please Please Me. Uh, they play a slow version of it, the way it was written, like a Roy Orbison tune. They come back the next week, though, um, because he had said, well, why didn't you try a faster version of it? Well, they didn't try it because they hadn't thought of it, but they listened to him, and they came back with the faster version, and they knocked his socks off. They really earned uh, his commitment to them. And from that point forward, really, it never wavered. Um, he immediately took the plunge and said, let's make an album. Uh, you know, he really helped to guide their career right along with Brian Epstein. It was, uh, it was quite magnificent, this kind of partnership that they had. It was the biggest stroke of luck that they didn't get signed uh, by DECA in January 1962, and they were still available for EMI. So it was just a magnificent stroke of luck that that brain trust, four people, all from, in their own way, the wrong side of the tracks. You know, Brian had failed at everything he'd ever tried to do. He was a, a Jewish homosexual living in Liverpool at a time when it was illegal, uh, of course, to be gay. So... Um, just absolutely uh, all these outsiders coming together and toppling the record industry. And George Martin infamously said after the Beatles recorded Please Please Me, the song you just referenced, he said something to the effect of, boys, you just recorded your first number one hit. And he was right. That's right. But, you know, the great Beatles writer and, and a good friend of all of ours, Mark Lewis, was the smart guy who went and found out from the folks who were there what happened next? And it makes the story even more powerful. So George brashly says, uh, you know, you just recorded your first number one. The Beatles fall over laughing. It's ridiculous. It's a preposterous idea that they're going to have a number one song. They can't, they don't even want to, they don't even let themselves pretend that that's something that's possible. Now, of course, what makes it a great story is George was right. Let's talk about John Lennon after uh, his early productivity 
post Beatles. He 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 records a, a bunch of great stuff. Uh, then he kind of starts to pull away. What's happening? We we know that uh, Sean Lennon was brought into the world. Was that really the, the much of the motivation for John to uh, remove himself from public eye and from music? Well, it was certainly important to him to be a a father who was visible and present. He <laughs> rightly carried a lot of uh, guilt over not being there for Julian Lennon, who was born in 1963 yeah. um, during those, you know, the, the years when they were barnstorming around the world with Beatlemania. And then later when, you know, they became the most eminent studio band of all time and put in 12 hour days, perfecting all of those great songs in the late 1960s. So um, he was very cognizant of the fact that he had not been present, that he, um, could have been a far better father. And this was even made more manifest uh, in the early 1970s when he started to spend time with Julian again, um, some of it at the behest of May Pang and later with Yoko. It was pretty clear that he had not been there. So he was determined to be a more present father for Sean. He was very uh, cognizant of the fact that Sean barely made it into the world anyway. It was a very difficult pregnancy. Even on the day of birth, they were having uh, problems, um, you know, taking care of the mother and the baby. So John was really aware of these, these sorts of things and wanted to be better. And again, I, I, you know, we cannot underscore the fact that he had to have been simply exhausted, uh, by making music for all of these years. And also that, that protracted immigration fight. Did John um, withdraw from public life completely during those years? I think there's probably there are some interviews. He did kind of try to once in a while make an appearance, didn't he? Sure. In 75, he was on the Tomorrow Show, um, you know, with Tom Snyder. And then he would occasionally do a piece here and there. But he certainly had lessened his output. Um, now, of course, if we go back and look at the record now, you can see that he's popping up here when the green car, sorry, when he, when his immigration fight is licked, then they can go to Japan, right? They can do those sorts of things. Right. There would be lots of sightings in New York. But the interesting thing about, about living in New York during that time, and even sort of today, is that, you know, New York tries not to, um, overindulge or out its celebrities. Uh, I think it's, it's one of the charms, certainly during that time and even today, uh, that folks in the city, <laughs> um, you know, they want to be, they want their privacy too. And, yeah. and, and so they sort of respect, um, you know, celebrities, uh, and, and, uh, there, there isn't a lot of head turning unless you're talking about the tourists, right. Who of course make up a lot of the city's visitors until recently. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, uh, but uh, it was probably the perfect city for him to try to lower his profile a bit. Now, that didn't stop him from uh, he and Yoko uh, had a number of favorite restaurants that they would go to. Um, he would take Sean when he was old enough, uh, actually pretty early in his life, to learn how to swim uh, at the Y on the Upper West Side. You know, so it's not like they were hiding out either. He liked to sort of compare himself to Howard Hughes, but he was certainly never reclusive like Howard Hughes was yeah. uh, by any stretch. And they would take these long summer vacations in Tokyo uh, and, uh, 
they would they would indulge themselves as they should have. You know, I mean, uh, he had given so much of himself to the world. Um, I, there were a number of rock critics who thought that that was problematic, that he had sort of disappeared in this way and was uh, sort of leaving music to its own devices. Um, you know, but John kind of quietly let it be known that that was his prerogative. Yeah. Yeah. And he writes about that in some of his music as well. We're talking with Dr. Kenneth Womack tonight. Uh, his book is called John Lennon, 1980, The Last Days in a Life. But he's got many Beatles books, many other nonfiction books, some novels as well. You can see all of that if you go to his website, which is his name, KennethWomack.com. Ken, talk to me a little bit about uh, drug use and John Lennon. We know that, you know, he had his episodes and had his issues. Did that last to the end of his end of his life that we know of? I, you know, I don't really spend a lot of time on that um, because I wanted to write a book that was more about how he lived and how he brought these great songs into existence. Mm -hmm. And others have sort of worked in that territory. Um, and, and so I don't spend a lot of time on that. I do address a moment that he brings up in his audio diary that he was working on in late 1970, 79. Uh, he had had a relapse with heroin and really chided himself over it. You know, it's, it wasn't even something very extended, but the fact that it happened uh, really bothered him. Um, and uh, Yoko had her own relapse in early 1980 that she was embarrassed about. Uh, but has been very open about in uh, in her own interviews over the years. Um, but you know, beyond that, uh, I you know I think it was it was predictably recreational. Um, I, I don't think they were having the, the kinds of issues that they did in the early 1970s. Others have written differently. Most notably, um, uh, you know, Goldman uh, in his book, The Lives of John Lennon, which yeah. came out in the, in the 1980s. But, you know, I didn't want to write a book that was about um, about drugs. Uh, I wanted to write a book about how these songs came into existence in the nick of time. Um, now, as I said, when he says something in a diary then it's going to be impactful in terms of his mind. He would also complain, though, about, you know, having sexual urges or other things um, that he would chide himself over uh, that might be getting in the way of his creative life or his artistic life or even his reading. You know, I mean, one thing I wish we had more of that I try to, to cover as much as, as I can is a sense of his library. What was in John's library? Mm. You know, we, we know from his list that he would give to his assistant, Fred, that, you know, he, he was reading a number of, a lot of nonfiction. Um, but, uh, and we know he was a voracious reader and he was very much in tune with what was going on from high to low culture, right? Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. he, like us, he watched Saturday Night Live. He watched uh, one day at a time, you know, um, this, you know, lots of schlocky TV. Uh, he saw it. Um, he was a great watcher of television, um, liked, but I, I find he, that charming because we all were. Yeah. He liked TV. I mean, he was, he was a TV watcher. Absolutely. And you know, um, he was a great observer of culture. And if you're going to do that, you turn on the television and you see what's happening and, and that's what he would do. He, he was very in tune with what was happening, he often had the sound turned down on the television. 
and he would have music playing quietly in the background, and he read and read and read. He read lots of magazines. He read the newspapers every day, and I said newspapers, plural. Uh, he, read, uh, he read all of the latest uh, nonfiction. Um, he particularly was interested in travel literature, literature of the sea. You know, he had, one of his favorite books was Kong Tiki, which he read several times. Um, you know, so he had a, a very wide, uh, high and low cultural life, I guess, as it were. Uh, but what I love about that is it just reminds us um, how human he is, right? How human he is like us. There's a great little version of watching the wheels. He tried it out in many different modes and with many different um, arrangements until he finally found the one that we know and that he liked. And one of them was sort of an old revolution-like version um, on his guitar where he's singing it kind of up-tempo. But when it runs out of steam at the end, he just starts talking about the captain and Tennille. (laughs) 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 You know, and and that's what we were doing too, right? You know, he liked the Little River Band. Guess what? So did we, right? You know, this was part of our culture. He heard Heart of Glass and, and was mesmerized by this great new sound and you know, rattled off a postcard to Ringo that maybe he should try to get a hit again by doing something like that. We need to talk a little bit about how uh, the songs, I'm not sure where to start here. Uh, Double Fantasy, obviously, is uh, was John's last album. And it was the record that was um, in the hands of, of his, his later assassin, uh, the night that he was killed, um, but those songs are really important, and they were the the basically John Lennon reintroducing himself to the music world. But a lot of that music is a result of John being away from Yoko, isn't it? Let's talk a little bit about the Lost Weekend and how that actually ultimately led to to the writing of many of these songs and what became Double Fantasy. Sure. So um, a couple of the songs do have their roots uh, in in the period in which he was with May Pang. Uh, May remembers uh, the melody, at least the, uh, of John's acoustic guitar, which had a kind of Asian flavor to it for Beautiful Boy. She remembers John, uh, you know, sort of perking up when they were watching, I think it was um, Chinese soap operas at one point. Uh, and there are a number of songs from that period, right, that have that flavor, like Number Nine Dream, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can sort of hear that, but then um, a, couple, a number of them he starts working on around 1976, uh, 77. Um, you know, one of the misnomers, and there are several uh, that I was interested in exploring, but one of them was that those songs had been written in Bermuda in the summer of 1980, and it was this big fusillade of songs. I think that was shorthand. Uh, that John and Yoko were using just to get through that that whole spate of interviews they were doing uh, in August, September, October, November, December, you know, those last months in 1980. Uh, I just named them all. I should have just said the fall of 1980. (laughs) Anyway, um, I think it was shorthand, really, just to explain that, you know, they had finished a lot of the songs, and he in particular had sort of wrap them up during that trip. But they had been around for quite a long time. And this is consistent, as you know, with how he wrote music anyway. You know, he was a a great um, uh, grafter, if you will, and and drafter of different pieces, and he would bring them all together. And they often would be 
uh, spurred on by found objects out in the world. You know, a day in the life is a couple of newspaper articles, right? You know, uh, happiness is a warm gun is an, is an article John showed him and a cartoon by Peanuts. You know, <laughs> these, right. these kind of things would um, stick in his mind and they would become part of his song. You know, a, a poem that he read uh, by, I think it was Milton Hayes, ends up being Nobody Told Me. <laughs> Or his own, you know, uh, witnessing with May of a um, of a UFO <laughs> outside their balcony uh, at their apartment. So um, he he was very good at weaving in the objects and language of the world into his songs, and that meant he would draft lots of different fragments. And so he would keep these around in his bag. He had, you know, lots of tapes and song fragments and and ideas that he would jot down. And they would start to, pun intended, come together (laughs) into these different pieces. And what we really see is that he's working on these um, sporadically until the late 1970s, and the energy starts to perk up. I I, I mean, I think they must have known by by late 1979 that something was going to happen for them in 1980 because their energy was back. And Yoko had been a great helper. You know, you asked about her earlier. Um, she'd been a great spouse in the sense that, um, you know, she had supported him when when he was starting to work again. She went to Manny's Music, that great store that used to be in the, you know, at Midtown, that oh, yeah. great music store, and, and purchased for John this uh, very state-of-the-art Yamaha keyboard. Um, and had it installed, and in fact, it excited John so much, he went to the store in person and got that Hummingbird acoustic guitar that would be very influential for him, along with his ovation in the late 70s. Um, So, you know, she helped stir in that energy because she could tell that otherwise, if left to his own devices, he might not leave his room and share those songs. He needed... um, you know, as George Harrison once said, uh, some people need somebody to set, to help spur them on. And for him, that was Yoko. And so she really helped him get to that place where he was starting to feel confident again. Do we know, in retrospect, was he proud of the work he did on Double Fantasy? I think so. Um, and, you know, he should have been because when you just look at that record by itself, look at his contributions, right? Yeah. You know, you've got Star over, watching the wheels, woman, beautiful boy, cleanup time, and of course, uh, one, lace, one last great song for Yoko, right, uh, on that record. They're all exceedingly well made. Jack was the right guy, Jack Douglas, to produce that album, and he did a splendid job on it, um, you know, in, in doing his best George Martin. George Martin, whom he admired very much and knew already at that time. Um, so, you know, so Jack had a really strong sense having worked with John and Yoko before how to, how to help them get something down on tape that they would be proud of and happy with. There's a great moment that, um, that I, I was sure to have in the book, uh, that just brings a tear to my, I choke up when I think about it. Uh, it was, you know, he only lived for a couple of weeks with that album available That's stores, right. yeah. which is, you know, even more distressing really when you think about it. Um, but Yoko had come to him uh, during those final couple of weeks, and she knew how important it was for him to put these put these new songs out in the world and you know get the old magic back that had to be in in their world and it and you can see it 
he was talking to his relatives back in England, his half sister Julia, for example, about coming back and and you know making that trip finally to see his aunt Mimi and all the relatives uh, to go up north to there is an ancestral family home that they wanted to get together in. And, and John was excited. He kind of wanted a number one, though, in his back pocket so he could come back, you know, with the ticker tape parade. Who can blame him? And Yoko was realizing that while it was selling and they were promised, they, they already knew it, they would have gold records soon uh, from David Geffen. But um, it wasn't going as quickly as they thought it would. And, and there are good reasons for that that we can talk about. But um, they had this moment. They're in the sitting room up there in, in, in apartment 72 in the Dakota. And Yoko is sort of saying, I, it's just, I'm sorry, it's going kind of slow. It's selling. But, you know, she was trying to sort of, I guess, temper his expectations. Yeah. And John did what a great spouse does. He let her off the hook. He said, you know what? That's okay. We have the family. Wow. And I just, I love that story because it just tells you so much about, in shorthand, where he was uh, during those last few weeks. And of course, he was about to really get excited about walking out of that ice. The um, music scene in 1980, I mean, if, if we think back, uh, I think the Bee Gees were probably one of the top acts at that point. And, uh, you know, John Lennon didn't create a disco album. No, and, and you just took the words, and I'm glad you did, right out of my, ma- my mouth. It was an intensely competitive time. I mean, all the what we came to call dinosaurs later are out. Elton John's back. McCartney is, you know, I mean, he has a number one song in 1980, right? You know, you've got all these these stalwarts, but then you've got New Wave and punks jostling for attention. Disco... Um, by 1980 has, you know, people are no longer burning disco records. It has earned its place in the firmament. You have uh, on the horizon a new British invasion coming. So it is an intensely uh, competitive landscape. Um, And there was the appropriate buzz for a new John Lennon album, but it was slow. And while he decided to tour, he wasn't doing it right away. Right. He was going to do it in 1981. And a lot of bands had learned by this point that if you wanted to see something happen in real time, you had to be on the road. Was John uh, when Double Fantasy was released, the critic uh, response was a little less than favorable in many uh, venues, wasn't it? I, I, you know, when you look back, it certainly was. I mean, 14-year-old me loved the album. Right. I loved Yoko's songs in the album. <laughs> I was so happy. I had I displayed it the day I got it in November 1980, which must have been the day it was released. I bought it at Target. And <laughs> and uh, and um, I remember vividly sort of placing it on my mantle and sort of, you know, in my bedroom and sort of you know, displaying it just as I'd done when I got the single a few weeks earlier. And, uh, you know, I was excited. A lot of my friends were excited. I, you know, it it was in heavy rotation, certainly just like starting over was on the radio. But yeah, I mean, it, it didn't feel cool like a lot of critics probably wanted it to in 1980, right? The, what, there was a, there was a sort of muscular way that critics wrote both, uh, Mm -hmm more brutally in the UK and certainly in, in places like Rolling Stone at the time. And it just came off as a guy who 
is about to turn 40 and wants to write about his family and things he's discovered about himself. Um, it probably didn't feel cool to the kind of rock literary set. No, it didn't feel cool to the rock literary set. People who were 40 identified with it, and uh, or, or in my case, 14, right? Identified <laughs> with it, and it meant something to them. I was just happy to have a John Lennon record happening after I discovered the Beatles. So it was a big deal, right? Um, the same way that I bought coming up the day it came out, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so those were, those were big moments for folks. I, he was not getting great write-ups. Yoko ironically was getting some good ink because she kind of sounded new wave in, in those songs or even daring, right? With kiss, kiss, kiss. Uh, every man has a woman who loves him, uh, really sounded au courant and contemporary. Uh, whereas John kind of sounded, uh, in a phrase that's become far more tired since his passing, Beatlesque. To quote John Lennon, life begins at 40, and John was 40 uh, when he died and when that album came out. I love the reference in the title, John, or Ken, uh, about John's uh, song, A Day in the Life. I mean, that's obviously what you did there. Um, tell us a little bit about how you came up with that. Well, I, I wanted to make sure it was something that wasn't, I didn't want to point too overtly to uh, his murder. The book is not about his murder. It's right. not a true crime book. I don't, uh, I don't depict that uh, in any sense other than he walks into an archway and the lights go out for all yeah. intents and purposes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, but, but the day in the life to me is... Um, it may not be your favorite Beatles song. It's many people's favorite That's Beatles song, but it's song, probably yeah. the most luminous and most important, um, you know, because of the fact that it, uh, it, it just, it pushed them forward. It was like the Beatles uh, on the Millennium Falcon going into hyperspace, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's just an amazing moment. And uh, it was him, I believe in 1980 doing what we all, if we, you know, we don't know our numbers up, but our number is up coming up to take one last stab at greatness. And, you know, regardless of what the critics say, it is a consensus great record and it should be. Um, and it is a guy, um, barely, he was what, he was 40 for how long? Uh, His birthday is October, right? October. Yeah. 50. He's not even 40 for 60 days. Yeah. Right. You know, um, and, uh, and yet goes out, sort of like the Tempest, right, at the height of his powers. And uh, um, and there were other things, of course, we didn't even know about at the time that were going to come to us, like Rolled With Me and and Nobody Told Me and these other wonderful songs. Talk about the Dakota a little bit. Obviously, we, we know that's where he was shot, but he lived there. Yoko still lives there. Um, that, that, the Dakota was kind of an important part of his life, particularly in New York City. Oh, they had chosen it, you know, very carefully as the place they wanted to live. They had um, sublet uh, actor Robert Ryan's place and uh, and then began buying up uh, apartments. You know, a lot is made about the fact that they accumulated so many different spaces in that building. But I, when I'm asked about that, I point people to Bruce Springsteen or Paul McCartney, who have warehouses full of stuff, That's right. right? Yeah. Because they've been in public life and they've been on tours and they, you know, and they accumulate uh, so much. John had 
you know, dozens of guitars, for example, um, and they needed space and they were getting more stuff all the time, you know, um, some of it because they would accumulate souvenirs from their travels, but also simply because, you know, the Beatles had gold records coming in all throughout the seventies, mm-hmm. you know, and other kinds of material. And the Dakota itself um, is just a beautiful building. I mean, architecturally, it's very unique. And if anybody's seen the film Rosemary's Baby, you're probably familiar with, with the fact that it was filmed there. Um, but it's it's just it's kind of almost the setting of a horror movie, despite Rosemary's Baby in its look. It's just got that that dominating look to it. It does. It's uh, it was um, completed in 1886, so it's one of the older addresses in New York City. Um, it was built uh, to attract people uh, along the future Central Park to to the Upper West Side uh, before it was even remotely fashionable. That's why it was called the Dakota. It was so far away from everything <laughs> that was happening. It might as well have been in the Dakotas, which were a territory right at that point. Yeah. So it was a very august, it is a very august address. Um, it was in a kind of a period of transition um, when they started to buy up apartments there because it used to be a sort of artsy kind of bohemian place, which the West Side was. Um, but it was starting, of course, to um, go up in price. Uh, and of course, now is, um, you know, only available to folks. Uh, with very great means, uh, you know, when when an apartment goes on sale. I mean, they bought theirs for double-digit thousands, and now they're double-digit millions. <laughs> right. You know, so, um, you know, if anything, it's actually surpassed the rate of growth uh, in the city uh, in terms of, you know, being able to afford to find affordable housing. So um, it's, a, it's an esteemed address that mattered to them. It also mattered, you know, they left. Um, what down in the village is where they lived before on Bank Street, which remember New York in the 70s and a lot of what my book is about is New York in the 70s and into 1980 was a very different place. It wasn't the same. It was a tourist mecca, but in a very different way. It still had a gritty sort of seedy side to it. It likes to pretend that it does now, but you know, it is uh, just living there is expensive and that uh, creates certain kinds of fiscal restrictions, financial restrictions. So um, it's an extremely different place. Um, I make sure that early on uh, I have the image uh, from the Dakota, this August address. One of John's neighbors, uh, I think on the fifth floor below him, is looking out toward the park, and he sees this family, and they're coming together to you know have a barbecue, right? Like you might have done today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, they're they're sitting at a park bench, and they, they're at one of those. Uh, they, they they start working on their barbecue pit, and then they began to hack up the the park bench to use as firewood. You know, <laughs> <laughs> um, this. This was do you, the park was a you know it was a rustic place, but it was also a place you didn't go as soon as it was dusk, right? Yeah. You know it was uh, that people. Uh, the, in fact, John and Yoko participated in a big cleanup in '79 or '80, where everybody from the Dakota went and cleaned up that little part that is now Strawberry Field, but that was sort of like their front yard, right? And they cleaned it up, and they looked out the next morning and all the garbage was back, right? You know, it was just, it was a different world um, in its own way. 
As you put this book together and researched it, what did you learn about uh, the Lenin's neighbors in the Dakota? Were they respected there? Well, I mean, there were a lot of people who were simply excited that they were there. And one of the most important adherents of John and Yoko was Leonard Bernstein, uh, you know, who was one of the very early uh, fans and of, who came from high culture, right? I mean, uh, you don't get any... Uh, more esteemed than him, he led the Philharmonic at that point um, in the in the mid '60s. Right, he was coming off of West Side Story. This is a true um, cultural star in the United States and abroad, and he was a very early fan of the Beatles. And to be able to live near John Lennon was a magical thing to him and his family. Uh, you know, his daughters remember uh, one of the last potlucks. They'd have a potluck every fall. Uh, in the courtyard, and everybody would bring something to share and just hang out together. And John and Yoko would usually bring sushi, uh, and, you know, they would they would all hang out there. And, you know, as Sean got older, it was sort of a family thing. And one, one of these potlucks in the fall, the Bernsteins um, sang the Moldy Moldy Man from one of John's collections of witticisms. And they just, you know charmed him to death. They, he loved it. <laughs> so a lot of people were happy about it. Others uh, famously were kind of annoyed by the fans who would congregate. Lauren Bacall did not like them. <laughs> she, uh, <laughs> a good friend of mine, remembers uh, watching her in front of Dakota bark at um, you know, some of the people for being there. And she sounded just like her commercials at the time for the New York Times. <laughs> you know, she would in this stentorian voice, she would sort of, you know, get out of the way. <laughs> Don't you have something better to do? You know, <laughs> so, you know, not everybody was a fan of it, um, as you might imagine. Um, in fact, they would congregate around the front door. So it was a secure building in most senses, um, although. We have to remember just – and this is one of the reasons, again, I concentrate on New York and that period so much in the book is because it was a different time, right? Our, the fear was not that somebody would come kill you. Mm-hmm. The fear for them was that somebody would kidnap Sean, right? right? Mm-hmm. That was the number one concern. The FBI, um, you know, that was what they would warn uh, famous people and celebrities about, you know, there weren't a lot of examples of their own safety being compromised. The issue was they're going to kidnap, um, you know, some of your offspring and we'll be lucky if they survive. There's going to be ransom. It, it, by the same token, of course, the big crime uh, that caught so much of our attention in the 1970s was hijacking. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so those were the fears, not that anybody was ultimately going to get killed, but that you know, there were going to be incidents and ransoms and demands and those sorts of things. So, um, you know, that was the fear. And the Dakota seemed like a pretty safe place. People could still get in. You know, uh, a couple of the neighbors got really bothered uh, when when teens would get in and run up and down the halls looking for, uh, you know, for John. Um, And, of course, in some notable incidents, people would impersonate, you know, in one case, uh, it was actually Paul Gorish who took a number of uh, are important photos of John from 1980, who first came into the building by pretending to be a cable TV repairman, <laughs> you know. Um, and, <laughs> you know, they would often have one doorman and maybe a concierge on duty, and it's not, you know, in a rush. You can get by those guys if they're busy. I, I, I was pulling up to uh, do a, a bit of a walking tour just around the neighborhood to make sure I had all my bearings 
uh, write and some of the places that I write about that are no longer there that I had those addresses correct. So I was in a hurry and I took a cab from Penn Station up to uh, the Dakota and it wheeled, it went up right up, uh, you know, Central Park West, made the left turn. And as I pulled and as I, my cab pulled up, the doorman left his station to come open my door, mm-hmm. you know, and I, as I tipped him, I thought, what are you doing? You know? <laughs> and that was much later than 1980, I imagine. <laughs> and that was right. And I wasn't even really going there. I just said I need I was meeting some wow. folks at the corner. <laughs> but you, you mentioned Paul Gorish and he and you said he took some important photographs. He took the, the infamous photograph of John Lennon signing uh, uh, Chapman's uh, uh, double fantasy album, right? Correct. He took that photo and a number of others. He took the really beautiful shot. I think his best photo, you know, in terms of aesthetics is the one that's on the cover of the Watching the Wheel single. My God, what a photograph. Um, uh, I was talking about it last week with Roger Farrington, who was there uh, that same day uh, to um, follow John and Yoko into the studio for the first time. It was August 7th, 1980. And uh, when that happened, um, you know, Roger was taking his own very good shots in black and white. And he saw, he watched Gorish take that photo. In fact, Gorish took a photo of Farrington, um, uh, you know, changing film or something (laughs) at the same time. And that is a magnificent photograph of John and Yoko coming out of the archway. But, yeah, he also takes um, the really infamous photo um, that, you know, I can't stand what it symbolizes, yeah. but John just looks great. Yeah. You know, um, uh, he just is in the, you know, the prime of life really in so many ways he's healthy. Uh, he just looks absolutely wonderful. And, and just, he was buoyant that day, you know, they just finished and they were in the throes of finishing this amazing recording. It's unreal. Um, let's talk about Paul McCartney a little bit. Uh, much has been made about the, the 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 feuds between John and Paul. We kind of touched on it earlier. However, what do we know about the final years of their relationship? I think uh, John, fortunately for us, made sure it was pretty emphatic. Really, um, you know, there's a you can see it on the internet. There was a, a, a word association quiz he had taken, and they had a bunch of names of people. And they showed him Paul McCartney, and he, without blinking, he said, extraordinary. You know, um, he uh, he lumped all sorts of praise on Paul for the McCartney 2 album, and he liked the, uh, you know, the sped-up, speeded version of coming up. Uh, he made no bones about it. He loved it. He, he told his assistant, it's driving me crackers. You know, he just <laughs> couldn't get out of his head. Crackers in a good way. And, you know, it, uh, I, I think any issues that ever existed uh, that two friends who know each other a long time would have, by the way, right, would have friction, um, was simply gone. Uh, and he says that very emphatically on his last, well, his second to last car ride when he rides with RKO Radio's Dave Sholin um, to the studio, hitches a ride with him after signing that autograph. And uh, Dave, um, I spoke to him about it a couple months ago just to confirm it. And he said, yeah, he wanted to see, you know, he hadn't really asked about Paul. So he said, hey, how are things with Paul? Sort of thinking you get a scoop or something, right? And uh, John did not miss a beat. He said, "Um, 
I love him. He loves me. I would do anything for him, and I think he would do anything for me and put a big giant period on it. Mm. You know, and I, I imagine Paul McCartney takes great solace, as he should and deservedly does. Uh, so from, from John just really underlining that with a big magic marker, you know, yeah. this is where we stand. Um, was there any truth? Was, was there any truth to the fact that uh, Paul would would stop by uh, the Dakota and uh, and and visit with a guitar and and how how did that go? So there, a lot of people write about this, and as you know, um, there's a lot of side taking. You know, are you a right. John guy or right, a Paul right. guy? And which I find infinitely frustrating because you know even though they would sometimes talk about their differences in personality, they're just about the same guy. <laughs> you know, they're, yeah. they're two guys born a mile apart. They grow up a mile apart in a uh, homogeneous shipbuilding town, <laughs> you know, in the yep. 1940s and 1950s. So their mindsets are not very different anyway. Uh, but a lot is made about, you know, John turning Paul away. Um, it was Paul coming over a lot, and John had a one-year-old newborn, and Paul was on vacation. It was April in uh, 1976. They were on hiatus before Wings picked up again in May. Uh, you know, Wings is the biggest band in the world that month, and Paul, uh, I think, Silly Love Songs is probably number one, as yeah. is the Wings Speed of Sound album. Mm -hmm. And Paul is in town, and he wants to see John. And they famously watch Saturday Night Live together, and the next day John call, uh, Paul comes back and John turns him away. Um, uh, I think that it probably only happened a few times. Um, Paul doesn't really see him again much after that, if at all. Uh, they do talk on the phone. Um, and they would occasionally talk business. You know, there'd be a Beatles reunion story that they felt like they wanted to suss out together before they, they would talk about it. Did they ever come close to doing that "quote unquote" reunion? Did that ever become a, a, a almost an almost event? Well, it certainly did in April 1976. I mean, by both accounts, they were ready to jump in the car um, and you know make the short trip to Thirty Rock and mm -hmm. and you know have a laugh and mess around with. <laughs> with Lorne Michaels and, and that sort of thing. Um, you know, so that was a real possibility. Um, as far as the other reunions go, you know, there would have been one at Eric Clapton's wedding in 1979 if they bothered to invite John. Um, there's still a certain level of mystery about how that invitation didn't go out. Hmm. Um, <laughs> so that, that would have happened. Uh, but I, I think it was becoming inevitable. The money <clears throat> was enormous. Um, as you know, by 79, it was getting very close if it hadn't already to being a full billion dollars. Wow. Um, and a billion dollars in 1980 was a very different kind of billion dollars, right? Yeah. Well, that was enormous amount of money. And to be able to, to do one concert and to bring those kind of dollars home for charity, I mean, how do you not do that? Um, uh, I'm I'm very sad and, and I think we'll always be as we all will about why they don't do that because it's because John is murdered. Um, but I, I, at the same time, you know, he would kind of quash those those stories by saying, you know, you, you 
people want them to get together. And there's part of him that probably did. But what he would say is, you know, it won't be the same band because it can't. Right. You know, 10 years have rolled by. They're not the same people. Um, we'll never know. But, of course, a lot of the power of the Beatles story comes from a very significant level of mystique. When they walk out of that studio and walk across the road in August 1969, they really don't come back. Yep. You know, they have a photo session on August 22nd, and that's it. Do you think uh, Abbey Road, which was the last album recorded, not the last album released, uh, was their best work? I don't know. You know, that's such a tough question, right? I mean, can you imagine? I, I, I think Revolver's the turning point, mm -hmm. if not yesterday, the song, you know, at least for George Martin and what he could see happening with the band. But Rubber Soul is that big turning point. Then you've got Revolver coming up right behind it and Sgt. Pepper and the White Album. I mean, all of these are indispensable. I mean, so is Let It Be, right? How yeah. can you not have those records? They're oh, just amazing. It's like... You know, it's it's they're like a great novelist and, you know, or Shakespeare. How do you pick, you know, the Tempest over Lear or, <laughs> you, you know, you need them all. And we have the great benefit of having them all. They certainly go out um, on a high point, though, without a doubt. They're not they're as good as they ever were. Hey, have you seen the movie that came out a few years ago called Yesterday? I have. What do you think of that film? Just quickly. I thought it was all right, but um, I love the idea. Mm -hmm. The problem is I'm just going to be a film critic for a minute, so I will change my voice. <laughs> uh, and my thumb is slightly down on it um, because uh, I didn't – I thought the romantic relationship was really poorly done. Mm -hmm. It kind of wasn't – there wasn't a romantic intensity, particularly on the guy's part. I mean, what was – they just didn't capture that thing that some leading stars do. Yeah. Um, and – because of that, and because we don't have the energy, that scene at the end, spoiler alert, where John Lennon, if you do the math mm -hmm. on A World Without Beatles, is not dead. Mm -hmm. That's right. right? Mm -hmm. And that scene should have had all of us in a puddle of our own tears yeah. in the theater. And it didn't, the payoff didn't work in the way I, it, it could have, to my mind. And, but I know others who did find themselves in a puddle of tears. So maybe I'm just jealous of them. Well, but <laughs> I happen but, to, you know, I, I go, go ahead. ahead. I was just saying, I happen to agree with you. I felt it, it, it felt a little bit short on every, a lot of levels. But the one thing that really struck me, and you mentioned it, and you, you made me think of it when you mentioned the Let It Be album, was that that songwriting competition that he does, the main character does with, and I can't remember the name of the of the pop star. Uh, that's in that actually produced the film, but he's in the film. You probably know the guy's name. Oh, Ed Sheeran. Ed Sheeran, yeah. and they do a, an on-the-spot songwriting competition. And of course, the 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 the, the main uh, character in the film has the benefit of all the Beatles songs in his head that no one else knows about. And he plays. I think it was Long and Winding Road, right? Was it that or Hey Jude? I no, can't remember, I think but it, it was yeah, long. It was and, amazing. Yeah, and 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 <laughs> and that was a poignant moment to me to de illustrate the power and the quality of the songs the Beatles made. Absolutely, and you know the thing that I am, and, and I'll stop writing books about them when I'm cured of this. But the thing that endlessly excites me about them and their story 
is they start with Love Me Do and they end with Abbey Road. (laughs) (laughs) That is a journey like no other. Right. You know, including the January 1969 songs that become Let It Be. That's part of that journey. What an amazing artistic ride. Shakespeare doesn't do that. James Joyce doesn't have that same level of, it's an incredible level of quality. Um, and as you said, you know, and it's increasing power as they go through and they're able to do this. And the fact that they stuck it out for so long, I think owes a lot to the, to the very point that you just made because the music was so good. They knew that, that they needed to do it anyway. It was bigger than them. There's that great moment in that, you know, hopefully we'll see in Peter Jackson's film, right? Where uh, George is, you know, he's left the band and he's come back and he kind of touches his heart and he says, heart of hearts, I should be here with you guys. Mm-hmm. Even though they're driving him nuts, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. He realizes that what they're doing is bigger than they are. And not only did they progress from Love Me Do to Abbey Road, they pulled the world with them. All of music progressed with them as they made that progression. And the number of artists that heard the Beatles, whether it was on Ed Sullivan or where, wherever they were introduced, who became uh, uh, sensations themselves, but inspired by those early uh, glimpses of the Beatles on television or hearing their records on the radio, that is a universe unto itself. Absolutely. And, you know, going back to the film, if there's a another failing, and I guess it can't be helped when you've built a, a high concept like that, it's that the songs, of course, don't appear in order. And what makes yeah. them exciting and interesting is, you know, the same band in July 1963 that works on She Loves You, four years later is doing All You Need Is Love and I Am The Walrus. <laughs> that in itself is hurtling through space and time at an unholy rate of growth. Um, that, to me, that's what fascinates me about them is is how they get there. And, and even with John Lennon's story, um, which is obviously unfinished, but he, he emerges on a new plane of existence with a whole batch of new songs that don't sound like what he was doing when he left. On December 8th, the day that John Lennon was shot and killed, uh, before he went to the studio, I believe, he he took some pictures for Rolling Stone magazine. Um, they're, they're pretty poignant pictures, but tell us, in your estimation, what they tell us about, the, about John Lennon in 1980 at that moment. Well, they tell you a number of things. Um, one, he still had that ability to shock, right? Uh, he, Annie Leibovitz um, was, uh, had got the cover assignment. John was supposed to be on the cover. Um, John had warned her that he wanted a cover shot that had Yoko too, uh, despite what Jan Winner might or might not have wanted. And uh, so he cooked up this idea of, uh, of doing a naked cover with her. She wasn't into being naked, and so he did it for her, and he wraps himself around her. And, uh, and apparently said, you captured our relationship perfectly, you know, with him sort of wrapping himself around Yoko for all his might. And, uh, and sure enough, that was, that was the cover shot, right? Uh, but it, it said a lot about where he was at in his marriage in the sense that he really wanted Yoko to get her due. Um, and he knew that she had recorded a number of great songs for Double Fantasy and even before that. 
she has a couple of really uh, sensational underplayed albums from the early 70s. Approximately Infinite Universe uh, is a good example for the folks out there. But um, he really wanted her to get her due. And uh, he was so excited because, to his ears, uh, the song that was going to change all of the trajectory of John and Yoko was uh, Walking on Thin Ice. In fact, that night... Um, when they're listening to the playbacks and preparing to go to the mastering studio the next day, John said, this is the direction. And I love that because here's this guy who has been showing us the direction for years, right? And blazing new progressive paths in music. And on the very last night of his life, he's saying, this is the direction, Mm -hmm. as though he's just found it for the first time. Wow. Do you think Yoko Ono has represented John Lennon and all of his accomplishments well in the years after since his death? I think so uh, on balance. Um, it, first of all, it's an unwinnable, untenable situation. Um, you know, all sorts of things break apart that night. Uh, not just the terrible tragedy of John uh, being murdered and the loss for Yoko and Julian and Sean, but also all the people who worked with him and knew them with whom he'd made plans. I mean, these worlds just split apart and collide, and um, lots of lives are just uh, tarnished and, and reoriented, you know. I think she's done a pretty damn good job, all in all, of being respectful of his memory and trying to negotiate through what uh, was a very difficult time in the eighties as the Beatles tried to sort out their business interests. That was a very difficult time with a number of new lawsuits that were emerging um, that they had to clear up so that they could get to the nineties and um, circle the wagons again and make the anthology. Um, so I think she's done on balance as good a job as she could in what are just frightfully awful circumstances, um, that don't get better. Right. I mean, it's a loss that I think actually becomes and feels more acute year after year. So I think she, uh, to my mind, she does a really excellent job under the circumstances. Are there missteps? Sure. Occasionally, you know, both she and Paul will make them too, right? Yeah. In terms of the legacy, um, simply because um, all of this stuff is so much bigger than just you know a few human beings, and it, I, I can't imagine the pressure that must exist even now, you know, when she's eighty-seven and trying to get this right, um, you know, and trying to honor his memory and honor her son and her stepson and all of these things, that's just got to be tough. And plus everybody's watching. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody's watching. Um, recently, and you, you probably remember the title. Um, there was a, a new documentary released uh, and a lot of it was uh, showing footage of John recording. Imagine. And I'm trying to remember what the title of it was. I felt like that particular documentary was a little bit of a greater effort, and probably because it was orchestrated by Yoko, but to demonstrate her involvement and how important she was uh, in John's, uh, not just his personal life, but his musical life. Right. And, you know, to a certain extent, she's entitled to, right? I mean, uh, I know there was a lot of, um, there was some backlash when, you know, she asserted co-authorship of Imagine, but 
<laughs> all you have to do is you can listen to the interview where John says, you know, I should have given her co-author yeah, credit. Right. Uh, if I were a bigger person or I forgot exactly how he phrased it, I would have because, of course, he drew it directly from her grapefruit book uh, and uh, her poem, you know, or her what did she call those? Um, oh, there was a wonderful term she had for them, uh, for her her little one-off poems that are so poignant that I will not remember in time for our guests tonight, <laughs> our audience. But anyway, um, <laughs> you know, so um, so she's entitled to a certain extent to do that, of course. But I'm reminded about something I learned in graduate school. I think it's really important. A lot of the best historical work is going to be done. 20, 30 years from now, right. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, you know, Mark Lewison is doing amazing things. I'm telling those early years, uh, the narrative of the Beatles early years, and he's about to, uh, in a few years, move into the midsection of their career. And he's doing it now when many of the principals are dead. Right. That's because you can sort of look with an unvarnished lens. That's a weird metaphor I just created. But <laughs> <laughs> you can sort of look at that world uh, and you're not having to keep score anymore, right? You're not having to worry about what this person thinks or that person thinks. And uh, a lot of the best history is written, you know, as the decades go on. You'd think it would be different, right? It would be closer to the subjects being alive. But there are a lot of really excellent examples of biographical works about huge historical figures that are done better later because you're not trying to satisfy people who are alive yeah. and um, holding sway, uh, for lack of a better world, word in the world. The book is called John Lennon 1980, The Last Days in the Life. What do you hope people walk away from the book with after they've read the last page? I hope that... Um, that they feel like I still do, uh, like 14-year-old me would, I would love to have read that book at 14, because it just, it you know the tragedies there, you know what he went through to get to the place to make music again, and, you know, when you're writing a book and you're reading a book, it has the feeling of real time, and I hope people feel the power and the majesty of that, and, um and I gave Sean Lennon the last word, uh, I, I think, in a, in a way that at least it's moving for me, you know. So I, I hope people feel the poignancy. And, you know, 40 years later, um, while we'll never get over what happened, and, and I mean we in the biggest sense, yeah. okay, because while you and I have been talking, hundreds of kids around the world, probably thousands, have discovered the Beatles. Right. And... And what a wonderful thing to do. Aren't you jealous of them in a way? Uh, so they've made this yeah. discovery. It's going to change their lives. But eventually they're going to read that Wikipedia article, and they're going to find out what happened to John Lennon. And it's going to break their heart, too. And this reminds us of so many of the – to me, I hope it reminds folks of the wonderful things that he and Yoko accomplished together and that John sort of checked off his list – uh, and even that last night, right? This is the direction. Yeah. Uh, I, who doesn't want that for the people they love in their lives to still be energized, even though there's something out there that's about to wrench them out of the world? I think that's powerful and inspiring, and you can hear it in my voice. I'm inspired talking about it. Ken, it's been a, a terrific 
hour and a few minutes here. And thank you so much for sharing all of the work that you've done with us, whether it's this book or any of the others. It's tremendous work and it um, it touches a real place in my heart. And I know I'm not the only one. There are millions of people like me who appreciate all you've done. Oh, well, thanks so much. And it's just been a great joy to speak with you tonight and talk about these things. So I thank you. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.